You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Great to have you here for our event, Measuring the Hard to Measure in International Development. Uh, welcome to those of you in London, but also those online. Uh, we had almost, uh, I think, up to 700 people signing up to, to watch this live online. So that's fantastic. Um, look forward to receiving your comments uh, through the online system later. Um, please do follow this event on Twitter as well. We have a hashtag, um, hard to measure. So please do tweet or look at what's happening on, on that channel. Um, my name's Simon Hearn, I'm chairing today. I've been a, a researcher here at ODI for the past 10 years, working in the Research and Policy and Development Programme. Uh, I'm also the coordinator of the Outcome Mapping Learning Community, focused on a particular methodology. Um, and just since last year, I've um, become a research associate here alongside doing some freelance work. Um, and my main interest is in outcome mapping and using that to, uh, to measure hard things like uh, policy influence and organisation development. Um, and I'm grateful to have a, a great panel with me um, who will be speaking today. We have um, Samuel Adai Boteng from uh, CARE International in Ghana. <coughs> He's flown to London especially to, to speak with us today. So thank you very much for coming. Um, we have Kate Dyer, who's an independent consultant and the former team lead for the DFID-funded Accountability in Tanzania program. We have Tina Parsonen, who's a research fellow here at ODI. And we have Catherine Harbour, who's a manager with the Evidence, Measurement and Evaluation team at the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Um, so we'll be hearing more from them shortly. So I just wanted to give a bit of background to this event and why we're hosting it. Um, the event has two starting points. Um, firstly, uh, it's, it's got a basing in the work that CARE UK has been doing um, uh, and in experimenting with different approaches to monitoring and evaluating their work. Um, they found that there's been a lot of interest in some of the methods they've been trying. Um, and it was uh, Tom who came to me and sort of first um, brought up the idea of, of having an event like this. So we appreciate that. Um, and the second influence is in the research that ODI has been doing over the past few years um, on evaluation. Um, and this, this started a few years back with a project called the Methods Lab. Um, and that looked at innovative approaches to evaluation and, and resulted in um, a lot of lessons about why it's actually quite difficult to do good, useful evaluation. Um, and we've continued this research um, by documenting and by reflecting on our own practice. Um, and this has led us to do a lot of thinking about um, what makes things hard to measure and why is it such a barrier um, to, to the work in, in a lot of cases. And we think there are important discussions to be had on this. Um, you know, yes, sometimes measurement is done badly, you know, and we need to understand those cases. But in a lot of cases, it's just that there's underlying reasons why 
we find it hard to measure. Um, and no matter how proficient we are at doing research and evaluation, we'll always, there'll always be a limit to our understanding of, of whatever we're trying to measure. So in our work, we've noticed four dimensions that, um, that, that, that can affect how well we can measure things. Um, so I've put those up on there. So, so the first is that some of the things we measure are just abstract. They're multidimensional concepts like accountability and transparency, which we're going to hear a bit more about from two of our speakers today. Um, that we, for those, we have to rely on imperfect models and proxies to, to measure those kinds of things. Secondly, it's that we're measuring in challenging settings, that sometimes in fragile states, sometimes in, in closed environments, um, where, where politics can often get in the way and block us from doing what we want to do. Thirdly is that the kinds of implementing structures that we're working with, uh, they're getting more and more complicated. You know, there's, there's consortia, there's networks, there's facilities, um, all these kinds of um, uh, implementing structures just mean that there's a, always a range of people measuring um, often different things, and, and we often struggle trying to aggregate those up to a, a meaningful level. And then fourthly, it's that you know, in development work, there's a lot of multiple uncertain pathways of change, and, and this sort of makes it difficult to assess how and why things are changing. So those are the sort of the framing dimensions that, um, that, that we've been thinking about here in ODI and we shared with the panelists and some of them you may, may sort of touch on some of those. Um, so each of the speakers is going to be talking from their own experience, from their own, from a particular project or program. And our hope is that by bringing up some of these challenges, we can all be a bit more informed about what it is that's actually making it difficult to measure things. And maybe we can better manage the expectations that are on us. Um, so after each of the speakers, we'll have a, a few minutes of clarifying questions. So if there's anything burning, that'll be the chance to, to pose your question. It's not for discussive, discussive questions. Um, we, we want to leave plenty of time at the end for that. So we'll have um, 20, maybe 30 minutes at the end for general Q&A and discussion. Um, so I'll be taking one round of questions after each presenter. Um, so again, thank you all for being here, and we'll go to our first presenter, which will be Samuel. Thank you very much, everybody, for having me here. Uh, I'll be talking about experiences on the Ghana Strengthening Accountability Mechanisms project in Ghana. In fact, the project seeks to enhance transparency, accountability, and performance in the delivery of District Assembly's capital development projects by local government officials in Ghana. It's a USAID-funded project. Uh, 10 million USAID funded projects that is being implemented in 100 out of the 216 district assemblies in Ghana. It actually started from 2014 
expected to end in 2019. Uh, it's been implemented by a consortium of three, with Care International in Ghana as the lead consortium, ISODEC, a local NGO, as one of the partners, and then OSFAM is also one of the partners that are implementing the project. Actually, we are also working through 27 other local partners because of the scope of the project, 100 out of 216. So it's, uh, it's in the whole country, and the project is a nationwide project. It's a social accountability project, like I said. And as we started implementing the project, we realized that at a point in time, we were not so sure whether we are overclaiming our outcomes or we are underclaiming. And that is partners who mostly come out with outcomes, with claims that, yes, GSAM is leading or is yielding this outcome. And as leaders of the project or people responsible for M&E, we are not so sure whether we should claim that GSAM is really contributing to that or GSAM is not. So it leads to situations where at a point in time you feel that, no, we are underclaiming. Or at a point you also feel that, no, we are overclaiming the various outcomes that our CSOs or our partners are talking about. So this became a real challenge. And it got to the midterm of the project. And the donor, that is USAID, also started putting a lot of pressure on us. Tell us the outcome that your project is yielding. So it became a big challenging, looking at the various concepts. Like I said, it's about transparency, it's about accountability, it's about performance in the district assembly's capital development project. So we look at the transparency, that is the local officials just opening up to the citizens and saying, yes, this and this and this is what is happening in our capital development projects. We realized that, no, we have gone past that. Then we looked at accountability. We were looking at two ways, enforceability, and then we were also looking at answerability. Accountability, we realized that, fine, in terms of uh, answerability, it's happening, but where the, someone will have to be sanctioned because the person hasn't done what is supposed to be done. We realized we were not there yet. So as we think through, or we were thinking through the bundles of outcomes, we realized that we could refocus on responsiveness as the intermediate result that we could measure looking at this, the, the, the stage of the project, that is midterm of the project. And our definition for responsiveness was that the district assemblies or the local government authorities take steps to identify what the citizens actually need, and they respond to it, or they do something to make sure that uh, the citizens are now happy and that they are okay with what the district assemblies are doing. So that was the definition we gave to our responsiveness. So as we were thinking through how best to measure that, it came in very, very handy that we had a learning initiative with Pamoja Evaluation. Uh, using the concept of contribution tracing. And a bit of contribution tracing is that it's a theory-based impact evaluation approach that combines principles of process tracing with Bayesian confidence updating. What basically it, it does is that it looks, uh, it's all about certainty and uniqueness of evidences. What I mean by certainty and uniqueness of evidences, maybe I can give some example to illustrate that. Now, GSAM is about 
district assembly is actually responding to the needs of the citizens and making sure that, yes, we train the citizens. Now they should know that they are supposed to demand for accountability from their local government authorities. So like the claim that we are talking about, district assemblies actually responding to the needs of citizens. There was one instance where the citizens were not happy about a building that the district assembly was putting up for the community, for the benefit of the community. <laughs> now, the community had a meeting and they put their concerns together. Actually, that community was one of the GSAM communities. So we had given them the capacity building and we have told them that yes, if the assembly is doing something you are not happy about, you can actually go ahead and demand that something be changed. So the citizens put their concerns together they followed up to the district assembly, and it was resolved. Using contribution tracing, if you want to get evidences to actually prove that this, I'll give one example of certainty and then uniqueness. Two, uh, uh, two examples I'll give is that. Now you want to show that the district assembly really responded to the needs of the citizens and really changed the thing based on the GSAM facilitation and based on the fact that citizens actually demanded for it. If you get an evidence that shows that, okay, a concern was sent to the district for redress, as compared to something that says that uh, you get an, as compared to an evidence from a DA official, district assembly official, through a video footage who say that yes, I'm the district planning officer or I'm a district engineer. The communities came, and this was the old plan of the project, and this is the new plan of the project, and there have been significant changes based on the needs and the things that the citizens actually put across. You could see that the second evidence I'm talking about is so unique that you can really say that, yes, it is GSAM that really contributed to that. But any other thing, just like a meeting attendance to show that, yes, there was a meeting between the two, even though it gives you some level of certainty that the uh, outcome has occurred and it may be as a result of GSAM, it is not as strong as the unique evidence that gives you a video footage of someone showing you the old plan and the new plan. So in the nutshell, what contribution tracing does is that, or has helped the project is that, it has helped us to look at data from different perspectives. Initially, we were thinking that every data is data. And even the more data you collect, the better. But with contribution tracing, we've gotten to realize that the evidences that you have to use to actually prove your claim, you can actually weigh them and to put much weight on others as compared to others. So that as you are going to collect your data, you don't concentrate on collecting every data at all, but you focus your attention on data that increases your level of confidence in your claim. So in actually coming out with the data that will increase your confidence in the claim, it's like pulling a needle out of the hashtag. Very, very difficult to do, and it's very down to, uh, tasking. But then contribution tracing has all the tools and the processes. When you apply it, that is using the principles of the, of the uh, process tracing 
and the Bayesian updating, you are able to come out with weights, like I said, where you are able to weigh all your evidences, categorize them very well. You go to the field. You don't spend much time, but you collect data. That is very much important to increase your confidence in claiming that, yes, this is what our project has contributed to. So as we went through the various processes, we realized that on my right-hand side is the process map of the GSAM project with the assumption that you start from one, it leads to two, it leads to three, four, five, six, seven. And then you end the, the distance with an outcome. But as we apply the contribution tracing, we realize that the process map was different from the causal mechanisms of the project. And that was to say that change on the project or the realization of, the, of, of outcomes on the project were happening differently through different pathways. So we actually came out with at least three different pathways through which outcome actually re uh, gets realized on the GSAM project. So before, we were thinking that it was just linear and that you have to start from one, two, three, and four. In the GSAM project, one assumption was that you train the, the citizens, they monitor the project, and after monitoring for some time, they put their concerns on a scorecard. It is presented at the district assembly. You ne they negotiate with the district assembly citizens, and district assembly negotiates. And at the end of the day, they come out with resolutions for improvements. But as we went through the process, we realized that there were instances that issues were, uh, were not necessarily sent through all the processes. Issues could be resolved by a district steering committee which was a committee that was formed at the local level just to oversee the implementation of the project. Some of them get it, they are able to resolve the issues around it without going through all the processes. And then there were other instances, issues got resolved outside how we were thinking should happen. So contribution tracing actually helped us to know all the causal mechanisms all the causal mechanisms of the project and how changes were actually occurring on the project. So by applying the concept of contribution tracing, now we have clearer concepts and pathway definitions of the GSAM project. We are very clear of how the pathways are on the GSAM project. And then we know that not all evidences can improve or can increase our confidence in our claims. Some of the evidences are just there, and that you, you just collect it, and it doesn't add anything to your level of confidence in your claim. But there are others, even though maybe few, when you concentrate your effort on, will be able to improve your level of confidence in your claim. It gave us the opportunity to also peer review ourselves as partners. The GSAM project is being implemented by a consortium. So the partners, all of us came together, we were able to review the project very well, and we had a very good understanding of things. It has also led to higher quality evidence of results in our project results. Uh, before applying the contribution tracing concepts, like I said, our partners were writing reports to us and claiming so many things without actually substantiating them with high quality evidences. And that is with evidences that will increase our confidence in our claim. But with the introduction of contribution tracing, now our partners submit reports, 
and some of them will want to put video evidences to show that, yes, what I'm talking about is true. So it's not about the quantity, how many evidences you present, but the quality of the evidences that you present that will be able to increase your level of confidence in your claim. And lastly, our donor, that is USAID, and other partners are all enthusiastic about the application of the formula in such a way that, of the approach, in such a way that sometimes we meet as uh, implementers and because of the improvements in the GSAM report, now we are able to put so many evidences together that prove that, yes, GSAM is leading to these number one, two, and three outcomes. So the donor USAID is very much enthusiastic about how we are reporting, and we couldn't have done those things without the application of the contribution tracing concept that help us to concentrate on data or the evidences that improves our level of confidence without necessarily con uh, concentrating on every evidence. So I want to thank you very much for listening. If you want more information, you can visit our Facebook page, as you can see, and the GSAM website as well. My email address is also there. And if you want to contact me, you can also contact me for more information about the GSAM project. Thank you very much. Thank you, Samuel. Um, I'll just take two or three questions if there are anything, if there's anything burning. It doesn't have to be. Yeah? Hang on. Is there anyone else? Okay, we've got one, two. Okay. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, let's go. We've got a roaming mic that's going to come to you in just a sec. Uh, David Lush from International Media Support in Copenhagen. Uh, the donor's very enthusiastic about this. How about the, 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 the beneficiaries on the ground? Can we take the other question at the same time and then Samuel can respond to both? Yeah. Hi, um, I'm George from Tradecraft. Um, I was just interested to know a little bit more about the, um, quite how it works in terms of the partners. So obviously CARE's the lead and you said you had 27 implementation partners and it's the implementation partners who are providing you with the evidence and you talked about how the, the quality of that evidence has improved and you've shifted from this focus on quantity to, to quality. I'm wondering at what level the, the kind of process tracing or contribution analysis takes place. Does it take place at the care level or do your implementation partners themselves get involved in that analysis to assess how strong the evidence that they're submitting is? Yep, do you want to take those two questions then? Only two. All right, thank you very much. On the first question, I mentioned the donor is very enthusiastic about it. And you are asking about whether the project beneficiaries are also very happy. Yes, they are also very, very happy. Uh, initially, some of them, maybe they participate in the project activity, for example. Now, now you have to go back to them and take video evidences of them. So when you visit the community, the person sees his own video, even as evidence is being shown, and they are very, very happy about it. So the citizens 
who are part of the project or who are the beneficiaries of the project are very, very happy about the fact that at least we come back to them even for them to prove the evidences for us, as well as the donor and, and the other partners. They now know that they don't have to spend much time, but they have to just concentrate on the evidences with the highest probative value, if I should sound, sound a bit technical, evidences that uh, improves our confidence in our claim. Back to your question, that is, after we have received the training from the consultant who is in this room, Gavin, yeah, we also did a step down training workshop for our partner CSOs. So they also know how to weight the evidences and how to come out with evidences that will increase our level of confidence, unlike previously where they didn't know and they were bringing any evidence at all. Good. Uh, thank you very much. So we're going to move on to uh, Kate's presentation now, and Kate's going to be talking about the experience of the Accountability in Tanzania program. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. I'm afraid I've come with the mother of all coughs, so I hope this presentation is not going to remind anyone of Theresa May. I have my pastels ready. Um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, a single indicator out of the ACT programme, which I think sheds light on a number of different elements of the categorisation Simon mentioned. So, excuse me, sorry. These are just the kind of vital statistics of the ACT programme. Um, as you can see, it's a couple of years out of date, but we're very much hoping that the next um, iteration of the programme will start before too long. It's a DFID programme actually managed by KPMG and targeting uh, a whole range of mid to large NGOs, international NGOs, local NGOs, most of them spending between about 150,000 and half a million pounds a year. But the most important point from this issue of what we're measuring and what's hard to measure is the purpose of the programme, which is to increase the responsiveness and accountability of the government of Tanzania to citizens through a strengthened civil society. So the challenge is really about how to measure accountability and responsiveness. And there's a couple of um, complications that really came with trying to focus in on that as a, an abstract concept. One of them is DFID's institutional requirements. Not really that DFID is any worse than any other donor, but they do have their own institutional requirements and they are ultimately accountable themselves through back to parliament. Um, and they are also want, then wanting to manage a contract with a supplier. So that gives um, a number of dimensions to what you measure and how you measure that perhaps wouldn't be there if you were working with a private foundation or somewhere when everybody's kind of within the same room, as it were. The other element that caused us complications was the diversity of partners. Um, most of them were of the size that I mentioned before, but we did, in order to ensure that we were taking on some of issues around things like disability, have to start working with organisations that were much, much smaller, much tinier spend, working at the level of one or two villages even. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, working with an organisation that was linked up with the International Budget Partnership, happy working with the PS of Finance, um, and everything in between. 
um, some organizations working in health education water, some of them working in small elements of um, beach management units and marine conservation, forestry, you name it, we were working there. And that really creates quite a significant aggregation problem. We started off joking that we were managing a problem of adding apples and oranges and finished up realizing that we were trying to add apples and shopping trolleys, which is harder. Um, so the solution was the, the um, indicator that I've just highlighted in the slide there. We were working with the number and description of changes made by civil servants and elected representatives at national and local level. Um, changes made in accountability and responsiveness. And we didn't go in too hard on trying to define accountability and responsiveness, but it was this sense that if government is doing something that is more responsive, what would it look like? What would, what would the change be? And it worked for us to do that because most of the partners were using outcome mapping. The reason that they were using outcome mapping was um, just it was introduced at the very beginning of the project really to help partners become a little bit more savvy about how they used political economy in the strategic planning of what they were doing. But it, we hadn't realized at the time that it would actually become massively useful to us in how we worked with the monitoring of the program. And the things that were most valuable is that outcome mapping explicitly focuses on behavior change. It focuses on single actors within a process. So rather than aggregating up at the level of enrollment levels in a school, for example, you'd look at what a teacher's doing, what a pupil's doing, what's the district education office doing. So you split out all of those different separate actors. Um, and you measure the change that uh, they are, the changes that they are undertaking through mini indicators called progress markers, and there's many of them. So they capture very small, subtle changes at the beginning of the process through to quite significant, potentially transformative ones. But because everybody was working to produce data at this kind of level, we found that we could then start aggregating it up because everybody was working with a district officer at some level, whether it was district fisheries officer or district forestry or district planning officer, you still had that element of needing for that officer to be doing something differently. And that's what we were picking up on. Um, so what the kind of, the way outcome mapping works, it looks at the, or expect to see changes at the beginning of the process like to see changes which are as the project takes off and is starting to get traction. And then you'll love to see changes which are transformational at the other end. And these high-level transformational ones we were looking for would be things like legislation passed, policy um, changed, um, budget allocated and dispersed, flowing through ultimately to benefits to citizens. Because if the process gets stymied somewhere further down the line that legislation is being drafted but it's not ever actually being brought to Parliament, it's not delivering benefits to citizens and it's no use to, um, it needs a lot further more work to go down the line. So outcome mapping um, gave us a lot. Um, the kinds of things that we were able to offer differed in terms of putting into our log frame 
with numbers each year, like 247. So what? Um, but 247 examples of government officers doing something differently, it, with each one a kind of three to five line description of what that change was. So being able to do that kind of numbers gave Diffid some confidence, this is the scope and scale of what's going on. But it also, because you could then get a very clear line of sight down to the individual change, starts opening up the more interesting conversations about what's actually going on in the program. Once you've got the big numbers there, you can start disaggregating um, to see where the changes are happening by sector, um, where the, the changes are happening by level of government, whether it's more at local level or at national level. Um, very interesting things about the kinds of responsiveness. For example, um, we did a search on just any of the results that showed anything to do with money um, and pulling out things from um, money being recovered from misuse, sacking or transfer of officials, councillors exercising their budget oversight role, um, allocating funds in line with citizen priorities, so that you can start to see the different kinds of results that partners are generating. And it doesn't matter particularly which sector they're in, they do give you an overall sense of what the programme was achieving. Also a sense of um, the need to work on the interrelationship between different kinds of results. It was a governance programme, but you can't just be working narrowly on governance. We took on some work partway through the programme also on climate change, for example, which was a, a very novel subject, very poorly understood, very difficult to translate usefully into Swahili. Um, and just to say we're starting in on climate change governance, when most people didn't understand what climate change was, you almost needed to plough the field a little bit first to get people to understand the concept and what was the point about talking about climate-resistant seeds or um, community forestry or something like that, in order then to get the conversation going about what governance would look like. So those were the, some of the, the obvious and immediate benefits. There were some, also some rather more surprising ones that gave us, again, more insight into the dynamics of change. Um, the separation that we had made between elected representatives and civil servants was really obvious to us, sitting in an, a nice office and trained in the Westminster parliamentary tradition. Um, it was obvious to most of our immediate partners, but down to citizens working on the ground, everyone was just government. Didn't make that many odds. And when you tried to actually unpick what triggered this result, very often it was it was just officials, whether elected or, or civil servants, working together. And party, belonging to the ruling party, it was obviously a, it became obvious that that was a, um, a critical underlying factor. Um, so so it, we, it enabled us to start seeing more of a kind of bottom-up view on what governance looks like. Similarly, um, what constitutes a result? We were doing some very specific work on anti-corruption. And my idea, at least, was that an anti-corruption issue would be one where a problem was identified, the CSO took action, um, the wrongdoers were identified, due course of law would take place, problem solved, 
move on to the next issue. But when we looked into things, um, no, almost none of our results were classified by the citizens themselves as fully resolved. They were only ever partially resolved. Um, some recognition of the issue, some compensation. Maybe the person concerned is no longer village chairman, but they're still on some of the Cree committees. But you're living in the same village, you have to work with it, that's as good as it gets. So the whole kind of notion of what was a result and what can you expect um, was a good reminder. Um, we tried to work a little bit more with significance. Um, this was something we borrowed or starting to borrow a little bit from the Pearl Programme in Nigeria, saying it's not just enough to have legislation passed as a one-off act, it's how does this follow through into systematic go action by government over time so that it just becomes <coughs> routine. Um, the question is, at what point do you measure this? What point do you assess that you've reached a tipping point? Um, and this has now become a significant result. So that's a kind of bigger issue at, at national level, big picture results. But even at local level ones, um, one of our partners spent many years and several tens of thousands of dollars getting a small women's group access to a few hectares of land. Um, and at one level, you could say they could have bought the land for that amount of money. What's, what's the issue? But on the other hand, if in years to come, that has become a um, um, case law and a, a real tipping point in women's access to land in Tanzania, probably cheap at the price. But if you can't notice that at the time. Um, so significance in that sense um, is a tricky word that I think we need to be quite careful about. And then just lastly, um, hooking into some of the interest around flexible and adaptive management. Um, we had thought we might be able to look at results and analyse them by the strategy used to achieve those results. Um, I guess I'm running a little bit short of time, so just in short, that is a little bit more of an academic study that doesn't really work in practical program management terms, not least because astute organisations that are driving change switch their strategy very rapidly, certainly much more rapidly than within funding cycles and discussions with their back donor. They're dipping and diving to do what needs to be done. You can afterwards sit back and, and look at what your database shows, but not necessarily at the time. So, um, conclusions quickly. I think um, there is huge value of outcome mapping in measuring the hard to measure. Um, I think one of the other things that I feel would need to usefully supplement the categorization is when you measure, um, because of this thing around um, significance primarily. But I think also um, we need to be keep bringing the question back to why you're measuring. Usually there's a kind of tension between are you doing it for learning purposes, are you doing it for accountability purposes. But if you keep the focus from both of those around program improvement, they're not so much pulling in both directions. And the learning should, I feel, really um, force you to question the way you framed the measurement challenge. And especially when that asks you what constitutes a result and a result that's significant for whom, I think that can start continually rebalancing the program around benefits to citizens 
And if these programmes don't deliver benefits for citizens, then we've lost the plot. So, thank you. Indeed. Thank you. <coughs> Any quick questions <coughs> before we move on? We have one from an online viewer, um, which I'll read out. Um, so this one's to Kate. Uh, what was the level of participation of women um, and or how the result impacted women and girls? Um, that's from Anonymous. <laughs> um, as, uh, just while you think about that, yeah. any other questions in the room? Yeah, we've got one um, and, and two behind... Okay, let's take those two, Marcus. So the gentleman in the mode chat. Thanks, thanks, Kate. Um, I just had a question about the the sort of nature of the dialogue that you had with Diffid, the donor, in terms of outcome map mapping and how much understanding there was uh, with your handlers. Mm. Hello. Good afternoon. I was just wondering um, if you could elaborate on how, or if at all, unintended, um, perverse, or even adverse consequences of the program were captured, um, looking at po negative change as well as positive change mm. and resistance. Mm. Thanks. So let's yeah. deal with those three. Um, perhaps if I, I might take them in reverse order, in a sense. I think this thing about unintended consequences is massively important. Um, and it was something that we almost found outcome mapping was a problem with the expect to see, like to see, love to see. We did start using a category of don't want to see because things do go back in the opposite direction. And you can be working in, a, in circumstances where the best you can do is make sure they don't get any worse than they are already. Um, there is a little bit of a tendency to keep looking, and it relates a bit to what Sam was saying, looking, looking for what you want to see. So you keep looking for the positive, and it can blind you to the unexpected consequences. But I think um, by get, keeping closer to the ground and keep looking at what are the changes that are happening, um, you get a better sense of where those resistances are coming from because you're looking at individual stakeholders. You're not just kind of going, oh you know, education sector statistics aren't improving, you're kind of going, this and this is happening, but the blockage is there. So I think it does help to do that. Um, in terms of dialogue with DFID, we found them kind of quite cautious and quite interested. Um, it, it's a little bit frustrating sometimes that new people come on board within DFID and need to be um, start the conversation again from scratch. But I think my experience has been they are equally interested in this challenge of how do you measure the hard-to-measure stuff. Um, they were pushing us to come up with something better than a, a list of apples and oranges and shopping trolleys. They didn't provide us with any real guidance about how to do it, but plenty of space to think it through. So actually, I think they were really as helpful as you could wish for, actually. Um, the question about women and girls. Yeah, level of participation um, and how the results impacted. Yeah, that's a little bit 
difficult to answer as an overall aggregation over the programme because some of the partners that we were working with were focusing very directly on, on young women. Not so much on girls, there was not very much around children, but women. Um, and there, there were very high levels of participation. Um, and everybody was, um, towards the end of the programme, collecting gender disaggregated data which is not at all the same as participation. Um, I would say it was, it, it's kind of quite uneven, but um, certainly the scope was there for organisations for whom they wanted to focus in that way. The use of outcome mapping enabled them to do much more reflective, detailed work on the nature of the participation they were seeking and, and obtaining. Good. Thank you. Um, thank you for your questions. And we're going to move on to our third <coughs> presenter, uh, Tina Parsonen, who will be talking from her experience working with the No4 program, another DFID-funded program. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Simon, and thank you, Kate and Samuel, for sharing your examples. So I decided to talk to you today about um, evaluation that I was recently involved as a quality assurance person for over a year. And this was a no-for evaluation. So the no-for was a forestry research and knowledge mobilization program. It was supported by DFID and it was implemented by three partners, uh, Center for International Forestry Research, C4, the International Union for Conversation Conservation of Nature, YUCN, and the World Bank Program Forest Pro4. And it ran between 2012 and 2017. Its mission was to equip a developing country decision makers and practitioners with forestry knowledge. Um, so it aimed to influence changes in policy and practice. And the evaluation aim was to assess the contribution of partner activities to intended program outcomes. Uh, so some of the measurement challenges we had in the No4 evaluation included, uh, first of all, the concept, so the policy change or equipping decision makers. So why? So this is hard to measure concept in that sense that um, when we are assessing, cha assessing changes in policy or practice, so we are not only looking for these ultimate changes, for example, in legislation, because uh, those might not happen during the lifetime of the project, if at all. But we also need to look at the smaller changes that are steps towards uh, that direction, such as changes in attitudes, behaviors, discourses, processes, and budgets, and so on. But how do you capture and measure those? Then there are always multiple pathways to change. Uh, if we think about decision making generally, the role of research and knowledge, uh, it's often quite limited. Uh, there are other contributing factors here uh, that affect hugely decision makers, such as um, existing beliefs, values, you know, politics, power dynamics, other actors. Um, then the implementing structure, though there was three independent partners. And I know that three partners doesn't sound too much in international development. We often work with projects with 20 plus partners. But I just want to highlight that they were independent. So um, the decision to work together on this No4 program wasn't made by the partners. It was a decision made by the donor um, for management and funding reasons. But it meant that actually the partners, they didn't really um, 
they didn't collaborate in research projects. So they did collaborate um, in monitoring and evaluation and gender to some extent, but didn't have like joint research projects. And this was challenging for evaluation because um, when you aggregate from partner level to program level and try to tell a coherent story about the program, at times it was quite quite difficult. Then the main aim was learning and building um, evaluation capacity and skills. And you may ask why this is under measurement challenges, and maybe it shouldn't be there. But I wanted to add it there because I think what is the main objective of the evaluation, or like main orientation of the evaluation, it has consequences for the measurement too. So how, for example, how evaluation <laughs> questions are formulated, uh, what uh, methods and approaches are used and how they are actually applied in practice and even just like how long the evaluation takes. Um, so the no for used the kind of uh, theory-based evaluation approach combined with partner-led evaluation approach. And I'm going to just talk to you today about this latter part, the partner-led evaluation approach. If you are more interested about the theory-based part, uh, just come to talk to me afterwards and I can share what was done there. But I thought that partner-led might be more inter uh, interesting out of new element. So what this meant in no for, uh, so simply it meant that partners, they had a leading role in each stage of the evaluation, in evaluation design and partner-led data collection, analysis and reporting. And to a large extent, this may sound or sounds quite similar to self-evaluations. Uh, and to some extent it was. Uh, but we see that it has like small but quite significant uh, differences. For example, the role of the external people involved. So the no for evaluation had also an evaluation facilitator who was responsible for coordinating activities, providing ongoing support and advice and was also responsible for program-wide data synthesis and analysis. And then there was external quality assurance, me and my colleague, uh, who provided feedback and reviewed it uh, at each stage. So how we see this uh, partner-led evaluation sitting is kind of, kind of between self-evaluations and then uh, the other side is kind of uh, externally-led participatory evaluations. So they combine elements of both, but was still a bit different from both. So in this kind of evaluation where partners really take the lead role, I think the key challenge was, though, is, so how do we ensure uh, and increase the validity and credibility of the process and findings? So, because the partner-led evaluation is not independent, and independency, independency is usually something that we see as a key strategy or mechanisms to avoid biases, or if not avoid, at least uh, reduce the likelihood of them, and you know, the, reduce the risk, uh, conflict, conflict of risk, no, conflict of interest, sorry. Because uh, when we assess our own work, we might, be, uh, we might see it too in positive light, we might cherry-pick only those uh, units of analysis or case studies that are most successful. And uh, we all might only see the evidence that already confirms what we kind of already know. So how to mitigate these biases in these types of evaluations? So what NOFOR did uh, used like several strategies. Uh, 
first of all, there was multiple sources of evidence. So it wasn't just case studies, there were outcome stories, lessons learned briefs, they used their monitoring data and compiled these huge result charts that combined all the evidence from all the projects so far. They brought external quality assurance person, so me and my colleague, and we didn't just review the final outputs, we reviewed the uh, initial evaluation plans, we reviewed the case studies, we gave them uh, strength of evidence ratings, we uh, participated uh, partner level and program level uh, sense-making workshops, and then reviewed the final reports. So it was quite intensive uh, engagement. <coughs> then they had their own existing <coughs> internal quality assurance systems, <coughs> and also developed uh, standard methods and tools for measurement use across case studies and partners. For example, this strength of evidence ratings. So each case study was given like rating how strong the evidence was to make these contribution claims. Um, yes, um, so the finally, kind of what value this kind of partner-led approach added. So I think that this partner-led approach, it was chosen to increase the ownership of the process to increase the likelihood of uptake of pro, uh, process and the findings, and kind of uh, support the learning, not just about the evaluation learning, but about how to design this kind of research to policy projects. So it wasn't really chosen uh, perhaps to address some of the measurement challenges that I presented earlier about the concept of multiple pathways to change, but I felt it did address some of those. Uh, but it also brought additional new uh, challenges for measurement. So, for example, capturing how research or knowledge uh, contributed to changes in practice or policy in particular time or place, it is quite difficult to capture. And you re it, it requires really understanding well the context and the projects and the, all the power dynamics. Uh, but often evaluators, they have quite limited time uh, to understand the organization, to understand the programs and case studies. And program staff's time may be just used to try to explain what is that they actually do. And so the evaluators, their final findings might be not that insightful for the program staff itself. But because they were leading the process, uh, they really had deeper understanding of program and case studies. So the findings that they came, came up with were more relevant and more insightful or more detailed for them. But but then, of course, we are talking about the complicated causal mechanisms here. And there are these biases, and this kind of evaluation, or this kind of approach, it does increase the likelihood of them. Uh, so it was important the analysis was supported by the facilitator, quality assurance, and the tools. Um, I think this is essential to kind of uh, to increase the validity and credibility. And finally, this kind of evaluation approach, it does take time and resources. But maybe that shouldn't be seen as a bad thing, because it also provides more opportunities for learning. And uh, if that was the main aim of the evaluation, so that kind of fit it there pretty well. So thank you. Thank you, Tina. Um, any questions? Yeah, we have one at the front here. Any others before we? Yeah, one from Tom. Web's question? Yeah, we'll take those. Thanks. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the role that the partners had in the project? 
in the project or evaluation? The project. Okay, thanks. And then, um, <clears throat> how did the partners take the strength of evidence ratings? How did the partners take the, the strength of evidence rating? Strength, strength of evidence rating, yeah. OK. Uh, maybe I start. OK, I'll start. <laughs> I'll start with that. So, um, so I just to say that I was the quality assurance person. So um, it wasn't really my project as such. Uh, but they, so they had, uh, each partner had uh, for five years different kind of projects. Um, they were about research or knowledge mobilization. Some did very kind of more classical, classic uh, research, uh, policy relevant always. Some did more kind of a training and uh, facilitating uh, big events. And uh, they all produced a lot of outputs, but it was really somewhere more about, about the facilitation and somewhat more about knowledge production. But um, yeah, I can't go really into details. Um, like, I don't have it in my hand. Um, then strength of evidence ratings, yeah, that was the interesting part of that. Um, so what happened is, so in each of the case studies, they they had to give themselves the strength of evidence rating. Uh, what they thought was the first of all, for each contribution claim they made, what they felt whatever it was like high, medium, or low, and then one like overall for the whole case study. Uh, and then we gave uh, feedback first for the case studies and they could revise them, and then we get like final ratings based on the revised. Um, and there, like most of them we agreed, but then there were a couple of cases that they weren't happy with the rating I gave them. And then we had to have discussion in one case to why that was case and why I felt, for example, that the strength, uh, the contribution claims weren't back enough with uh, clear enough evidence. Um, but finally we agreed what was, but yeah, it was, um, in a couple of cases, it wasn't so straightforward. Great, thanks, and thanks for the questions. So we're gonna move to some final um, remarks by Catherine, um, who's uh, sort of had a preview of the presentations and has been able to um, actually provide some, some quite informed comments based on her work as well. Um, so over to Catherine, thanks, thank you. Simon. And thanks very much to the presenters, Samuel, Kate, and, and Tina, and thanks to the organizers at ODI and CARE um, for sharing your perspectives, experiences, recommendations on this very important topic about measuring the hard to measure. Thanks also to the audience for your interest in this, the audience in the room, in online, and in the future. Um, it's a very important topic that we'll, I'm sure, be continuing to discuss uh, for some time. I'm offering a few overall comments, and I'd like to pose a couple of questions to the panelists at the end. Um, many of us in the room are responsible for measurement. For We work in monitoring or evaluation or both. And we're the critical friend that's entrusted with telling the program implementers the truth as we've agreed on how and what to measure and what the truth might be to inform decisions about course correction and subsequent programming to achieve strategic goals. That seems easy when everyone agrees on what the concepts are that are important to the program and important to measure, and they agree on the tools to measure them. It's even easier when the tools are simple and inexpensive and have little measurement error, error so that everyone agrees, all the stakeholders know what to measure, how to measure it. If you need to know the temperature, you use a thermometer and it's measuring in degrees Celsius. If you need to know the time, you can use a watch or your phone or a clock and you're measuring in hours, minutes and seconds. However, development initiatives often operate in uncertainty and complexity 
and the tools for measurement may be unfamiliar to the stakeholders, and there may be a lack of consensus about what to measure and then the validity of the measurements that we produce. So we who are entrusted with measuring ask ourselves, have we measured the truth? Have we measured the truth about entrenched economic and social issues, about multi-component interventions, diverse sets of stakeholders, multiple intersecting pathways to impact, which are known or unanticipated, and how do we deal with shifting contexts like elections that change, change priorities uh, and require course corrections and adaptations along the way? Have we measured the truth, and have we measured it in the right way? Have we used the right tool to measure? And other stakeholders might also ask, question our work. So the methods and experiences highlighted today remind us that there's often multiple perspectives, all of which have something to contribute to the validity of the measurement and are important. We have the kind of distributed capabilities that we need to uh, account for in our approach to measurement. Decisions about measurement as well as about program implementation, of course, always involve trade-offs. And we, the measurers, have to mitigate error and we have to measure and we have to foster buy-in to what's being measured. We have to know uh, how it's being measured and fulfill our role to the project as the critical friend that says what needs to be said or points out the information that's helpful to plan for the future. So the organizers proposed a framework of four dimensions of hard-to-measure aspects for development interventions. And so I'd just like to highlight those again. First was the what. So abstract, multi-dimensional concepts, processes, and issues. Just like Kate described in measuring the accountability and responsibility in Tanzania, and Samuel described about responsiveness in Ghana. Um, Kate described the outcome mapping uh, using policy actors, uh, progress markers, and, and looking at policy actors, accountability and responsibility. So a, a way to mitigate the difficulties of that aspect of measurement. A second dimension of where, challenging settings, including conflict-affected areas. Um, this also, I think, includes settings where the, there's important stakeholders who might oppose something being measured. Um, child trafficking, marginalized populations, those could be a bit of an embarrassment to stakeholders and something that might not be uh, first on everyone's list to measure. The third dimension, the how and why, multiple uncertain pathways of change and unintended consequences. Um, Samuel described the Ghana Strengthening Accountability Mechanisms Project uh, program and clearly the importance of clearly defining concepts and pathways and rating evidence collectively, so getting the buy-in of stakeholders. I think that's something that all three of the presentations uh, described, this um, collective understanding of what's being measured and how it's being measured and, and understanding the commitment that uh, stakeholders have to those concepts. <coughs> uh, so using contribution tracing, tracing, as Samuel described, helped to mitigate this over and under claiming of outcomes from the project. The fourth dimension of who, a multi-layer implementing structures. So Tina described the NOFOR program and the evaluation that assessed the contribution of partner activities to the program outcomes in forestry and really embedding evaluative thinking amongst the stakeholders in that project. Uh, we've also, Kate, Kate mentioned when, the importance of when as another concept that needs to be con considered about measurement, measuring at an appropriate time um, when something has had the chance to mature and have its impact. So we're developing consensus on what to measure and how to measure it. Uh, and we should remind ourselves, I think, that 300 years ago, concepts like temperature 
was we didn't have a consistent way of measuring that. We didn't have agreement about how to measure it, and that slowly evolved. Um, we have probably come a long way in the understanding of concepts like empowerment, uh, that they need to be considered in project design and it should be measured throughout the project. Um, and I think we're coming to coming closer to consensus about how to measure that, but still have a long way to go. So in conclusion, I hope that, uh, I know I have, I hope you have also gained a shared understanding for identifying some of the concepts that need uh, close uh, attention for their complexity, for their difficulty for measurement. Um, and just finally, I'd like to ask a few questions of the panel, if that's okay. All right. Um, so in the programs that you've described, uh, what were some of the trade-offs that your team had to make in your role as the critical friends? Um, and then if you had another, say, $20,000, pounds, euros, what would you have done with it? And if you had another $200,000, pounds, euros, what would you like to have done with it? And just while the panel thinks about those, um, have a think about questions that you'd like to ask. Um, uh, as we'll come to take a round of questioning very shortly. Um, and also online viewers, um, please feel free to post your questions and they'll filter their way through to me. Uh, who wants to take on Catherine's questions? Sam, would you have something to contribute? Let me start. <laughs> yeah. On this, um, applying the principles of contribution tracing, uh, it was a learning initiative, and it was a pilot we were doing with the support of Pamoja Evaluation Service. So we did not get the time and the space to come out with a complementary claim or <laughs> other complementary factors that could also contribute to our claims. But we will recommend that if someone wants to actually implement contribution tracing, then it's something that someone will have to be thinking about that it's a best practice that you also do a, a complementary factor, or you have to find out the complementary factors that are also contributing to the attainment of your claim. Uh, if we have 20K, uh, as we went through the various processes in the project implementation, like the city tenders, we realized that there were some weak links in our project implementation. For example, we're realizing that the main reason why we give money to uh, our partners or the CSO partners is for them to implement, uh, to train the civil society organization or the citizens to increase their knowledge uh, in district assemblies development processes. But we realize that even though we give them the money, we track the activities they do, disaggregated by gender and all that, we were not actually tracking the change in knowledge at that level. We were only tracking on annual basis, on a wholesale, but what the CSOs or the partners were actually doing and the immediate change in knowledge, we were not tracking. So we've gotten a lot of lessons implementing the city, and if, if we have 20K, we will use that one to maybe sort of improve upon those processes and think of something like a CAPS survey or CAPS review, knowledge, attitude, and uh, perceptions uh, aspect of the project so that we are able to actually improve on that. Uh, as for 200K, I don't think we will need that because uh, the method we are talking about or the approach we are talking about is talking about trying to collect less data 
that will improve your confidence in your claim. So we wouldn't want to spend more in implementing that methodology on our project. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, did Tina? Okay. The trade-off, I think, the biggest pressure I felt under was the need to spend um, as opposed to the need, the time taken to nurture a partner's organizational systems and the long gestation of results. But when you're managing an aid program, money is the tool in the box and you've got to get it out. Um, so that's the major trade-off, I think. In terms of 20K, um, Samuel's persuaded me that it might be worth doing a little bit of a deep dive into some parts of our database to see what some contribution tracing would show us that we didn't get out of outcome mapping, just out of like almost interest. With 200K, um, we started a really interesting kind of final add-on year of our work, working with a small cluster of organizations, just enough funding for what they needed to do, but with a really tightly organized learning support to those organizations. So to use 200 partly as funding for those organizations, but partly for the learning program, and to really get into tracking these multiple pathways and multiple strategies, trying to do that real time, as opposed to doing it six months a year down the line. If we could speed things up and really get that instant insight, I think that would be very valuable. Thanks. Okay. Um, I think um, in the know for, at least know for evaluation, the clear trade-off was between learning and independence of evaluation. So by, get, by focusing on learning, it did increase the likelihood of some of the biases. So the second question, so I'm not sure what the program would have wanted to invest the extra money, uh, but what I think was what would have been useful and was maybe perhaps missing in this evaluation was kind of one-to-one -one methods training session before the evaluation really started. So for example, the case studies were meant to use uh, either performance story approach or episode study approach. And even there was uh, support and advice available, yeah, it became some point clear that it would have been more useful to go really have a workshop and really work these, these things through. 200,000, I think there was actually in this program, it was a lot of was invested in monitoring and evaluation and learning. So I'm not sure whether 200,000 would have been needed. Maybe I'm, I'm just, <laughs> uh, yeah, for the evaluation, yeah. Good, okay, so let's take a round. Um, we've got about um, just over 15 minutes. That should be time for uh, two or three rounds of questioning. Um, and I'll feed in some of the online questions as well. So let's just take, um, we'll take one from there and you were first over there and then I'll take an online question and then we'll come back for another round, okay? Thanks. Um, I'm Rosie Lavoie from Save the Children. Um, and my question is, I'd like to pick up on Kate's final point about why are we measuring um, and the, the critical shift between measuring for donors and measuring for accountability learning and program improvement. And I think we would all agree with that, but it's difficult to do in practice. So um, practical tips on how, how best we can support that at a programmatic level. Thank you. And over here. 
Um, I was just wondering if each of you could maybe just offer one or two pieces of advice to other sort of program managers or implementers who are looking at, you know, how to put together an evaluation in these tricky sort of type projects. So just one or two things each would be awesome. Good. And then there was an online question that I'd like to put to the panel. Um, so did any of the presented approaches increase M&E costs? Uh, and did you get donors or fund managers to accept the true costs and delays that come with doing good M&E? Um, and, and did the M&E actually take longer in the end? Um, that was, again, from Anonymous. Um, so, so we have uh, Rosie's question on learning accountability. How, how do we actually practically manage that balance? Um, Sophie's question on um, uh, how to put together a, uh, an evaluation... Practical tips for, for putting together good evaluation. Who wants to go first? <coughs> I can see Tina scribbling, so maybe she's obviously got something in her head. Okay, um, maybe I can answer your questions about like, or like tips for the eva uh, evaluation. Um, well, I think one good thing it would one useful thing would be for you know, when you plan the evaluation would be to do some sort of evaluability assessment. Mm. <coughs> to this can be done kind of light, that's all more in depth, but really think through what is feasible, what is plausible, and what is useful for this program. And one of my uh, what I keep uh, rambling about is always uh, OSC duck evaluation criteria. So <laughs> don't. Yeah, but don't the, the OECD DAC, DAC uh, evaluation and criteria. Committee. So it's one of these criteria that is often used. There's this five dimensions about effectiveness to sustainability and impact, and people often use it as uh, like almost laundry list. They include everything possible there, really without thinking through whether this is really useful or feasible to do at this point. So I would say don't use it. I don't, don't, no, don't, don't use it as a, I'm going to continue this, use it only to kind of support your thinking, but not kind of support, not instead of your thinking, like really think through what is there and pick up the most important evaluation questions for yourself and for your program. Thanks, Tina. Samuel? Okay. In building a very good m system, I think that it's worth it to spend a lot of time at the beginning to make sure you put the right systems in place. And then after you've put the right systems in place, you wouldn't spend more or much time during evaluation. Like I mentioned earlier on, our, our project, it was a pilot at the midterm of the project. But if we had started with the contribution tracing concepts from the beginning, so many things would have changed and we wouldn't have actually spent much time in our pilot evaluation, just as we did recently, because we would have put so many things and would have known that, yes, ex ante, these are the things you'll be looking out for, and would have put those things in place. So we realize that certain evidences are very good to increase our confidence in our claims, but because we did not think about them 
or think through them from the beginning. We did not take particular notice about those evidences, and we are looking for them now, we are not getting. So it's like, wow, had we known, and had we been a bit more meticulous from the beginning, this would have saved us a lot of time. So you shouldn't rush into finishing with the system. Make sure you ask yourself all the necessary questions that are needed, and you think about the end from the beginning of the project. What are the things that will be so much important at the end of the project when I'm evaluating? Make sure you put all the, all the systems in place to be able to capture those things so that doing evaluations, it will be very easy and simple for you. Thank you. And do you want to tackle Rosie's question, perhaps? Is that the, the first one? Yes, um, learning accountability. Yeah. I think my answer to that one is really do the accountability side really well. Get beyond anecdotes, get beyond trust me. Because once you're doing that really well, you can start opening the conversation around the learning that needs to happen or the learning that is happening. And you can start bringing things back around program improvement. Because that's where, that's, you know, with your two overlapping Venn diagram things, the program improvement is in the middle. But if you don't get the accountability side done well, um, the back donor at whatever stage of the delivery chain is going to be anxious and they're not going to be interested in talking about the interesting things that make the program work. Um, something just on you know evaluation tips. Are you allowed to say anything about better evaluation? Because <laughs> um, I mean that seems to me like the world's biggest crib sheet and the, I've learned so much from that every time I flatter myself that I know enough about evaluation but every time you go and look on that website you find really direct, helpful things to... Um... So that's betterevaluation.org. <coughs> um, and uh, does anyone want to say anything about the costs of m and &E? Did they turn out to be higher than expected? How did, that, how did you manage that discussion? Uh, I w yeah, I would just like to say the partner organisations that we were working with, I think a huge learning for them was the responsibility across the whole organisation for M&E. They quite often came to us at the beginning of a partnership almost wanting us to fund an M&E officer who was kind of someone out there, like an internal audit only on the results. And they didn't really want to engage with what M&E was about. Um, and it took quite some dialogue with them to persuade them that it had to be properly designed and fully integrated across the whole programme. Um, and then you start generating the interesting results um, that you can start linking this accountability argument with a learning argument. But when you try and hive it off as something separate and, and slightly dirty and something you don't really want to do, that's when they get into problems with, with costs and money because they're not thinking about how the spend is being made. Good, yep. <clears throat> so we'll move on to another round of questions. So we had, we had two here that were remnants from the last round that I didn't pick on. Um, so we'll take you two and one from this side. Yep. Hi, uh, my name's Jamie Pett. I'm a consultant with Transformational Index and also work on a DFID and ODI project called Learn Adapt. Um, this is something that's been touched on a bit already, um, but I'd like to invite the panelists to 
uh, to talk a bit about how these approaches can support adaptive pro projects um, as they try to experiment and iterate towards success. Um, Eleanor, I'm a researcher into the impact of international volunteers um, with children in vulnerable settings. Um, and my question is whether any of the panellists experience additional barriers, especially when you're working with child beneficiaries, and whether you find buy-in from stakeholders to be a lot more reluctant um, in the settings relating to children. Yep. Uh, Emily Balls from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I know that there's a lot of data in outcome mapping from my experience, and it sounds like there is in contribution tracing as well. So I was wondering if you could share a bit more about how you analyzed and managed that data in terms of the tools and systems you use, but also your approach to data analysis. Thanks. Good. Um, and I'll just include um, one from the online audience. So is there anything that just can't, can't be measured um, because they're too complex? Um, so things like... Um, they, and they suggest, uh, this is from uh, Michelle Locott, and they suggest things like gender equality um, because it differs across so many contexts. Um, so is there anything that just cannot be measured? Um, so there's those four questions there. Um, I might invite Catherine to respond to the question about children. Sure. Um, that's a difficult question. It's certainly perhaps more challenging both for certainly for getting ethical approval to conduct research with children. Um, and, and then I think probably also there's some um, sense that we know what they've, we know what they're experiencing. So someone will speak for them. Um, and there's certainly many uh, vulnerabilities and, and situations that need to be mitigated to, to, to conduct research with child beneficiaries. Um, the foundation that I work for is often working with systems that provide services for children, in which case we're trying to work with ministries of health and, and that kind of a thing, but or um, adolescents. But certainly any kind of um, vulnerable population that, that is difficult to reach will present these challenges. So no answers. <laughs> we should keep trying. Um, Jamie's question on adaptive programming. Anyone want to take that? Maybe just to, I can. Just to say something. Um, so I think, yeah, adaptive management program is one of these kind of buzzwords or concept happening at the moment. Um, and I think it's one of the signs almost, always, like there's this trend going at the moment. I feel like, yeah, putting emphasis on learning, but also bringing evaluative thinking into monitoring. And I think what this is what uh, adaptive management is doing. Uh, which is of course you know, great, uh, but I think it also it does introduce a lot of changes, and so it, like learning cannot be done on top of everything else if there's not room or space or time or you know resources and money for it, and I think it does require kind of a lot of adjustment from the you know what kind of people we are hiring, what kind of you know skills and what else their job descriptions are from starting from there. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of keen to see how it actually plays out. So I think we all agree on principle level it's important. But when we come to practice, do we agree that we are, we are you know, happy to make the changes needed in order to, to happen? Um, I think that remains to be seen.
Yeah. Um, I think outcome mapping is great for flexible and adaptive work. Um, the challenge with applying it in the context of a lot of DFID-funded programs is that at some point you have to interface with a bureaucratic log frame results framework. And the only way that I can see around that is to not make your log frame do more than it can do. So that you've got to have an awful lot of monitoring sitting underneath the, the log frame um, which is where an awful lot of the interesting stuff is and where the discussions around learning are happening. But you still need to have um, the log frame for that. If you try and make your log frame have everything, then it's always going to be too rigid for you and flexible and adaptive work will get in, um, get uh, pushed out of the way. And I think that may link a little bit about data and outcome mapping question. Um, my sense is, you're completely right, there's huge amounts of um, data that is there. The skill is in filtering it between the different levels of the delivery chain. So if you're working, like we were working with DFID, a supplier, an international NGO, a local partner and a partner on the ground, at some point you're transla translating languages, literally. And at our office in the capital city, you wouldn't have seen the vast majority of what's going on. Um, you wouldn't have seen that all of that data that's being collected um, in pen on scraps of paper in Swahili. But it needs to be well filtered so that the correct information comes to the surface. So that individual partner organizations were collecting evidence against their progress markers. But what we were doing was not collecting the progress markers, we were coding the evidence as it came in. So we coded it according to which of our indicators it fitted against. And had that, it went into a database, but then we exported it into Excel so that you could then filter it in any way you wanted. Um, but the skill was not having too much information. All right. So just to add up to <laughs> Kate. Yeah, applying contribution tracing to your situation <coughs> is also possible. <coughs> what contribution tracing does, basically helping you to reduce your data to the ones that is very much important or that will increase your confidence in what you want to claim for. Uh, I must confess that it took us some time, about two weeks of training here and there from the consultant before we really got the processes, tools, and those things, and how to really apply them very, very well. So the time here is very, very limited for us to be able to go through the tools and the processes. But you can contact Gavin, who is here with us, so that he takes you through how best you'll be able to apply contribution tracing in your case. He's here with us, so he can actually help you through that. Good, thanks. I think we've got time for one more quick round. So there was a question at the back from Arnaldo. Another question at the back over there. Was there one on? Okay, let's just take those two. Um, hi, my name is Arnaldo and I work uh, at ODI, the Research and Policy and Development Program. I would like uh, to ask a question to the panelists about the integration of the uh, monitoring slash learning work with the implementation work of the rest of the team in the sense that uh, my experience uh, having worked up until recently in a relatively large project showed that the pressure that Kate uh, hinted to of for delivering and showing progress 
limits the involvement of, let's say, the program people into monitoring and learning activities, which would then contribute to the adaptation of the whole intervention. So I would like to hear your experience uh, with that. And there was another one at the back there as well. Hi, my name is Pavel. I am a mini global lead for Active Citizens, which is a British Council program. I wanted to ask you how you reached a conclusion, what sort of method, evaluation method and approach you apply in the end, because it seems like it hasn't been really embedded in the design of the program, so you had some flexibility. But as we know, there's a, there's a spectrum of methods you know, to measure emerging impact. And did you pilot other methods on a smaller scale, or did you involve consultants to maybe decide on what's the best evaluation method for, for this particular program? Like, how will you reach that conclusion? Um, and then I'll just read one out from the online. Um, so this question, um, I think, refers to a little bit about what Kate was talking about and in her indicator, which referred to the collection of um, stories of change. And the question is whether, how you reconcile this idea that you can collect the, uh, the number, a number of stories of change with actually the need to have measurable indicators, um, usually in, in a log frame. Um, and is there actually a way to go beyond just identifying and, and counting those stories of change? Or so there's those three questions. And we also, I didn't, um, respond to the last question from the previous round, which was, is anything not measurable? So if anyone's got anything wise to say about that, we can bring that one back. Um, good. Who wants to start? Can I pick up on another? You can. Um, it is a challenge. Definitely it's a challenge. Um, especially because the donor doesn't want to be funding staff that they don't see is really necessary to take the time to do the learning and reflection. So everybody has got a very full job description. And then there's a little bit of an assumption that all of the interesting learning takes place on top of that. The only thing that I would say is it's about the kind of the culture that you, you are able to establish in the team that's managing the program, that there is a whole attitude around curiosity and learning. So whenever there's um, a set of results that come in, it's not about just coding them and getting them into the database and moving on. It's, oh, that's interesting. What's going on there? That's a bit surprising. Um, so it's a whole, it's, it's an attitude of mind that you're trying to, to establish there. Um, but I, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it, that is a real challenge. Tina, you just wrote something down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, no, I like yeah. Kind of maybe building on on that, and also kind of the earlier questions about accountability and learning, and and all this evaluation, monitoring, all this. I've been playing with this idea whether we should try to be more, whether we should to have make learning part of accountability. So maybe it's not a great idea, and maybe. Yeah, I, I agree that mindset is more important that you build this mindset for learning. But if we make learning part of that we need to kind of measure learning, we have indicators for learning in the log frames, maybe it's taken more seriously by the donor as well, that it is something that we should put resources and time 
uh, I don't know whether I, it's not ideal solution, but it would be could be a made start. So wouldn't see then as a separate learning would be part of that that needs to happen. The donors expect to happen. Uh, maybe it would be an incentive to start. Just throwing it out there. Just, just, just to add up. Uh, what I normally say is that, uh, in terms of implementation and the adaptation of MNEE information, I normally would tell the project implementers that please, you are implementing the project on daily basis, but the donor is interested in MNE information. So you implement, and then the MNE information is what the donor is interested in. He's not interested in, but at the end of the day, he wants to see results. He wants to see the data. So USAID will always say that the money we've given to you, you can only justify with data. So I tell implementers that we are out of business if we do not implement this, 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 and this M&E learning. And I think once we do that, in a way, putting all other factors constant, attitude and all those things, is also able to influence how those who do the activities themselves also are more of responsible in ensuring that we adapt to the learnings that come out from the M&E information, which really helps because they want to keep themselves in business. I'd, I'd like to agree with what the panelists contributed, and, and certainly this idea of learning is something that we're accountable for doing seems very appropriate. Um, certainly, I'm interested to know what's happening, and, and I think we all understand things don't always go smoothly, and there needs to always be adaptation. So much better to find out about it than to hear about it someplace else, um, or to begin to question the data. So yeah, I think I think letting the funders know what's happening and including that as part of your accountability tracking, uh, it's a great idea. Any quick remarks on the question about how you choose approaches, how you choose methods? Well, I would say that start always evaluation question, like what is the question that you want to ask, like you really need to ask, I need to know, and then the approaches and methods they follow from there and not the other way around. Very good. Can I just pick up on the, the number of stories of change? Yep. Um, I think it's quite an interesting question because um, I think the indicator that we had of just number and description was astonishingly crude. And it surprises me in a way that it's, it's lived as long as it has. Um, and I think it has because it's quite useful. If you just stick with the crude number, then it is just numbers of stories of change. But because of the way that you can then play with those numbers and filter and disaggregate and do detail and cluster things in different ways, you can get a lot more interesting pictures out of that crude number. And that's why it's got value. If it, if it were just a crude number, I think um, it wouldn't have lived very long. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, no one wanted to take the question of, is anything not measurable? Um, I guess no one wants to put their name to that. Uh, but I think, you know, as Catherine mentioned, things in the past were unmeasurable um, and we found ways to measure them. So I think, yes, there are things that are now are uh, unmeasurable, but that doesn't mean they're always going to be unmeasurable. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone um, for participating today. I'd like to thank our 
uh, speakers, uh, Samuel, Kate, Tina and Catherine. Um, it's been a delight to discuss with you. I think some interesting things have come up around um, evidence and how we actually know that this evidence is credible um, and what are the threats to that credibility. Um, what even do we start to measure in the first place um, and how we can go beyond just like the, seeing learning and accountability as a tension that needs to be ma uh, managed but as um, actually two uh, things that, that work together. Um, I'd also like to thank CARE for co-hosting with us um, and I'd like to thank uh, Marcus and Louise for helping um, organize the event um, and uh, I encourage you all to stay and um, network and chat. There's a reception next door with some drinks and nibbles, um, which is uh, kindly put on by care. So uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs>